Hello and welcome to Automazing Guys. This is your host, Alien Snape, coming to you live. So first, guys, I want to apologize for taking a quick hiatus on my book. I've been real busy this week and haven't exactly gotten to it. I think I've set myself to where I think I might post one podcast. Well, I know for sure I'm going to post at least one podcast uh, episode per week. I want to try and do more than that. A week but if that's all I can do then that's all I will do so anyway guys let's get past the weird awkward apology where I'm going I'm sorry you guys I also want to throw in that you guys are what has made this podcast worth it uh, I will be honest within this last week I've been thinking about quitting this podcast but I've gotten more reads than just myself, and I've decided that you guys are what's going to make it worth it. Though I may not be starting out good right now, and though it may seem like my podcast is going to go nowhere, uh, I'm going to do it because you guys are what's making it worth it to me. You guys are the only reason I have even decided to continue to go because I feel like I have an obligation to fulfill to you guys, um, specifically. So, anyway, let's get past all this weird, awkward, emotional stuff. Ugh. So, let me get on to, uh, talking about what we're gonna do today. Um, today I'm gonna be reading from chapter 12 to chapter 17 of The Hypnotist. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Let's do our daily quote, shall we? I love the daily quotes. They're so inspirational sometimes. It's ridiculous. I'll be completely honest. Alright, let's see which quote up we are going to use, guys. For our first one, we are going to be using my Lessons in Life app. And we're going to be reading, supposedly, about a hard work quote from my Lessons in Life app. So let us see what today's quote's going to be. Alright guys, today's first quote is, Give me a stock clerk with a goal, and I will give you a man who will make history. Give me a man without a goal, and I will give you a stock clerk. Alrighty. I don't exactly know what the meaning of that is, but hey, you know, quotes are quotes. Alright guys, let's start with the reading. The Hypnotist, Chapter 12. Tuesday, December 8th, morning. Eric slowly opens his eyes to the pale light pressing against the curtains. He rolls over with a grunt and glances at the alarm clock. Two hours have passed. Immediately, his mind begins to replay the images from the night before. Simone's angry face as she made her accusations, the boy lying there with hundreds of black knife wounds covering his glowing body. Eric thinks of the detective who seems convinced that the perpetrator had wanted to murder an entire family. First the father, then the mother, the son, and the daughter. The older daughter is out there somewhere in extreme danger if Junalina is right. The telephone on the bedside table begins to ring. Eric gets up. But instead of answering, he opens the curtains and peers across the facade of the building opposite. 
trying to gather his thoughts. The dust glazing the window panes is clearly visible in the morning sunshine. Simone has already left for the gallery. He doesn't understand her outburst, why she was talking about Daniela. He wonders if it's about something else altogether. The drugs, maybe. He knows he's very close to a serious dependency on them, but he has to sleep. All the night shifts at the hospital have ruined his ability to sleep naturally. Without pills, he would go under, he thinks. He reaches for the alarm clock, but manages to knock it on the floor instead. The telephone stops, but is silent for only a little while before it starts ringing again. He considers going to, into Benjamin's room and lying down beside his son, waking him gently, asking if he's been dreaming about anything. He picks up the telephone and answers. Hi, it's Daniela Richards. Are you still at the hospital? It's a quarter past eight. I know. I'm exhausted. Go home. No chance, says Daniela calmly. We have to come back. That detective is on his way. He seems even more convinced that the perpetrator is after the older sister. He says he has to talk to the boy. Eric feels a sudden dark weight behind his eyes. That's a bad idea, given his condition. I know, but what about his... What about the sister? She interrupts him. I'm considering giving the detective the go-ahead to question Joseph. It's your patient, if you think he can cope with it, says Eric. Cope? Of course he can't cope with it. His condition is critical. His family has been murdered, and he'll find out about it under questioning from a policeman. But I just can't sit and wait. I don't want to let the police at him, but there's no doubt that his sister is in danger. It's your call, Eric says again. A murderer is looking for his sister, Daniela breaks in, raising her voice. Presumably. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm in such a state about this, she says. Maybe because it isn't too late. Something could actually be done. I mean, it isn't often the case, but this time we could save a girl before she... What do you want from me? said Eric. You have to come in and do what you're good at. Eric pauses, then answers carefully. I can talk to the boy about what happened when he's feeling a little better. That's not what I mean. I want you to hypnotize him, she says seriously. No. It's the only way. I can't. I won't. But there's nobody as good as you. I don't even have permission to practice hypnotist at, Karol at Korolinska. I can arrange that. Daniela, Eric says, I've promised never to hypnotize anyone again. Can't you just come in? There is silence for a little while. Then Eric says, Is he conscious? He soon will be. He can hear the rushing sound from his own breathing through the telephone. If you won't hypnotize the boy, I'm going to let the police see him. She ends the call. Eric stands there holding the receiver in his trembling hand. The weight behind his eyes is rolling in towards his brain. He opens the drawer on the bedside table. The wooden box with the parrot and the native on it isn't there. He must have left it in the car. The apartment is flooded with sunlight as he walks through to wake Benjamin. The boy is sleeping with his mouth open. His face is pale. He looks exhausted despite a full night's sleep. Benny! Benjamin opens his sleepy, drenched eyes and looks at him as if he were a complete stranger before he smiles the smile that has remained the same ever since he was born. It's Tuesday. Time to wake up. 
Benjamin sits up yawning, scratching his head, then looks at the cell phone hanging around his neck. It's the first thing he does every morning. He checks whether he missed any messages during the night. Eric takes out the yellow bag with a puma on it, which contains the factor concrete desuppressant acetyl spirit sterling cannulus compresses surgical tape painkillers. Now or at breakfast? Benjamin shrugs. Doesn't matter. Eric quickly swabs his son's skinny arm, turns it towards the light coming through the window, feels the softness of the muscle, taps the syringe, and carefully pushes the cannula beneath the skin. As the syringe slowly empties, Benjamin taps away on his cell phone with his free hand. Shit, my battery's almost gone, he says, and lies back as his father holds a compressor to his arm to stop any bleeding. Gently, Eric bends his son's leg backward and forward. Then he exercises the slender knee joints and massages the feet and toes. How does it feel? He asks, keeping his eyes fixed on his son's face. Benjamin grimps, grimaces as, same as usual. Do you want a painkiller? Benjamin shakes his head, and Eric suddenly flashes on the unconscious witness. The boy with all those knife wounds. Perhaps the murderer is looking for the older daughter right now. Dad, what is it? Eric meets Benjamin's gaze. I'll drive you to school if you like, he says. What for? Chapter 13 Tuesday, December 8th, morning. The rush hour traffic rumbles slowly along. Benjamin is sitting next to his father, the stop-and-go progress of the car making him feel drowsy. He gives a big yawn and feels a soft warmth still lingering in his body after the night's sleep. He thinks about the fact that his father is in a hurry, but that he still takes his time to drive him to school. Benjamin smiles to himself. It's always been this way. He thinks when Dad's involved in something awful at the hospital, he gets worried that something's going to happen to me. Oh no, Eric says suddenly. We forgot the ice skates. Right. We'll go back. Doesn't matter, says Benjamin. Eric tries switching lanes, but another car stops him from cutting in. Forced back, he almost collides with a station, station truck. We've got time to turn around and just like... Forget the skates. I don't care less, says Benjamin, his voice rising. Eric glances at him, surprised. I thought you liked skating. Benjamin doesn't know what to say. He can't stand being interrogated. Doesn't want to lie. He turns away to look out the window. Don't you? asked Eric. What? Like skating? Why would I? Benjamin mutters. It's boring. We brought you brand new... Brand new. Benjamin's only reply is a sigh. Okay, says Eric. Forget the skates. He concentrates on the traffic for a moment. So, skating is boring. Playing chess is boring. Watching TV is boring. What do you actually enjoy? Don't know, Benjamin said. Nothing? No. Movies? Sometimes. Sometimes, Eric smiles. Yes, replies Benjamin. I've seen you watch three or four movies in a night, says Eric cheerfully. So what? Eric goes on, still smiling. I wonder how many movies you could get through if you really liked watching them. If you loved movies. Give me a break. Despite himself, Benjamin smiles. Maybe you need two TVs, zipping through them all on fast forward. Eric laughs and places his hand on his son's knee. Benjamin allows it to remain there. 
Suddenly, they hear a muffled bang, and in the pale, and in the sky, a pale blue star appears, which, descending, smoke-colored points. Funny time for fireworks," says Benjamin. "What?" asks his father. "Look," says Benjamin, pointing. A star of smoke hangs in the sky. For some reason, Benjamin can see Ada in front of him, and his stomach contracts at once. He feels warm inside. Last Friday, they sat close together in silence on the sofa in her narrow living room out in Sundbyberg, watching the film Elephant while her younger brother played with Pokemon cards on the floor, talking to himself. As Eric is parking outside of school, Benjamin slowly spots Ada. She's standing on the other side of the fence waiting for him. When she catches sight of him, she waves. Benjamin grabs his bag and, sliding out the car door, says, Bye, Dad. Thanks for the lift. Love you, says Eric quietly. Benjamin nods. Want to watch a movie tonight? says Eric. Whatever. Is that Ada? asked Eric. Yes, said Benjamin, almost without making a sound. I'd like to say hello to her, said Eric, climbing out of the car. What for? They walk across to Ada. Benjamin hardly dares to look at her. He feels like a kid. He doesn't want her to think he needs his father's to approve of her or anything. He doesn't care what his father thinks. Ada looks nervous. Her eyes dart from son to father before Benjamin has time to say anything by way of explaining. Eric sticks out his hand. Hi there. Ada shakes his hand warily. Benjamin sees his father take in her tattoos. There's a swastika on her throat with a little star of David next to it. She points at her... I, she's painted her eyes black, her hair is done up in two childish braids, and she wears a black leather jacket and a wide black net skirt. I'm Eric Benjamin. I'm Eric, Benjamin's dad. Ada. Her voice is high and weak. Benjamin blushes and looks nervously at Ada, then down at the ground. Are you a Nazi? Asked Eric. Are you? She retorts. No. Me neither, she says briefly, meaning his eyes. Why have you got a... No reason. I'm nothing. I'm just... Benjamin breaks in, his heart pounding with embarrassment over his father. She was hanging out with these people a few years ago, he says loudly, but she thought they were idiots in. You don't need to explain, Ada interrupts, annoying. He doesn't speak for a moment. I... I just think it's brave to admit when you've made a mistake, he says eventually. Yes, but I would interrupt it as ongoing lack of insight not to have it removed said eric just leave it shouts benjamin you don't know anything about her ada simply walks turns and walks away benjamin hurries after her sorry he pants dad can be so embarrassing he's right though isn't she, isn't he she said she asked no replies benjamin feebly i think maybe he is she says half smiling as she takes his hand in hers. Chapter 14 Tuesday, December 8th Morning The Department of Forensic Medicine is located in a red brick building in the middle of the huge campus of Karolinska Institute, and inside the department is the glassy white and pale matte gray office of Niels Ahlen, Chief Medical Officer, a.k.a. The Needle. After giving his name to a girl at receptionist, Junalina is allowed in. The office is modern and expensive and comes with a designer label. 
The few chairs are made of brushed steel with austere white leather seats, and the light comes from a large sheet of glass suspended above the desk. The needle shakes Juna's hand without getting up. He is wearing white aviator-framed glasses and a white turtleneck under his white <coughs> lab coat. His face is clean-shaven and narrow. He, the gray hair is cropped. His lips are pale and his nose long and uneven. Good morning, he says in a hoarse voice. On the wall hangs a faded color photograph of the needle and his colleagues, forensic pathologist, forensic chemists, forensic genesists, and forensic dentists. They are all wearing white coats, and they all look happy. They are standing around a few dark fragments of bone on a bench. The caption beneath the picture states that this is a find from an excavation of 19th century graves outside the trading settlement of Burka on the island of Bajoko. New picture, says Juna. I have to stick photos up with tape, says Needle discontently. In the old pathology department, they had a picture sixty feet square. Wow, replies Juna. Painted by Peter Weiss. The writer? The needle nods. The light from the desk lamp reflects off his aviators. Yes, he painted portraits of all the staff in the forties. Six months' work, and he was paid six hundred kroner, or so I've heard. My father is in the picture among the pathologists, he is down at the end. The needle tilts his head to one side and returns to his computer. I'm just working on the post-mortem report for the Tumba murders, he says. Yes. The needle peers at Juna. Carlos rang up to hassle me this morning. Juna smiles sweetly. I know. The needle pushes his glasses back. I gather it's important to establish the time of death in the different victims yes we need to know the order the needle searches on the computer his lips pursed it's only a preliminary assessment but the man died first exactly i base that clearly on the body temperature he says pointing at the screen extern says both locations the locker room and the house were roughly the same temperature so my estimate was that the man died just over an hour before the other two. And have you changed your mind now? The needle shakes his head and gets up with a groan. Slipped disc, he murders as he sits off down the hall. Judah asks him as he limps slowly towards the post-mortem unit. They pass a room containing a fresh-standing dissectant table made of stainless steel. It looks like a drain board, but with rectangular sections and a raised edge all around. They enter a cool room where bodies being examined by the forensic unit are preserved in drawers as the temperature of 40 degrees Fahrenheit. The needle stops and checks the number, pulls out a large drawer, and sees that it's empty. Gone, he says, and then returns to the corridor. As they walk, Juno notices that the floor is marked with thousands of scuffs from the wheels of gurneys. They reach the... They reach another room, and the needle holds the door open for Juna. They are in a well-lit, white-tiled room with large hand basin on the wall. Water is trickling into a drain on the floor from a bright yellow hose. 
On the long dissection table, which is covered in plastic, lies a naked, colorless body marked with hundreds of black wounds. Katja Eek, says Juna. The man's woman, the dead woman's face is remarkably calm. Her mouth is half open, and her eyes have a serene look about them. She looks as if she is listening to beautiful music, but her peaceful expression is at odds with the long, vicious slashes across her forehead and cheeks. Juna allows his gaze to roam over Katja's Eek's body, where a marbled vein has already begun to appear around her neck. We're hoping to get the internal examination done this afternoon, Juna sighs. God, what a mess. The other doors, the other door opens and a young man with an uncertain smile comes in. He has several rings in his eyebrows and his dyed hair hangs down the back of his white coat in a ponytail. With a little smile, the needle raises one fist in a hard rock greeting, pinky and index finger aloof like devil's horns, which the young man immediately reciprocates. This is Junalina from National CID, the needle explains. He comes to visit us now and again. Fripe, says the young man, shaking hands with Juna. He's specializing in forensic medicine, says the needle. Fripe pulls on a pair of latex gloves, and Juna goes over to the table with him. The air surrounding the woman is cold and smells unpleasant. She's the one who is subjected to the least amount of violence, the needle points out, despite multiple cuts and stab wounds. They contemplate the dead woman. Her body is covered in large and small punctures. In addition, unlike the other two, she has not been mutilated or hacked to pieces, he goes on. The actual Let cause of death is not the pocket. wound in her neck, but this one, which goes straight into her heart, according to the computer tomography. He indicates a relatively unimpressive-looking wound on her sternum. But it is little difficult to see the bleeds on the images, says Fripe. Naturally, we'll check it out when we open her up, the needle says to Juna. She fought back, as says Juna. In my opinion, she's actively defended herself at first, replies the needle, based on the wounds on her palms of her hands, but then she tried to escape and simply tried to protect herself. The young doctor studies the needle intently. Look at the injuries on her outer arms, says the needle. Defensive wounds, muttered Juna. Exactly. Juna leans over and looks at the brownish-yellow patches that are visible in the woman's open eyes. Are you looking at the suns? Yes. You don't see them until a few hours after death. Sometimes it can take several days, the needle says to the young doctor. They'll turn completely black in the end. It's because the pressure in the eye is dropping. He picks up a brief flex hammer and asks Fripe to see if any endomuscular contractions remain. The young doctor taps the middle of the woman's bicep and feels the muscle with his fingers checking for contractions. Minimal, he says to the needle. They usually stop after 13 hours, the needle explains. The dead are not completely dead says Juna, shuddering as he detects a ghostly movement in Katja's Eek's limp arm. Mortu vs docent. The bed, the dead touch the living, replies the needle, smiling to himself as he and Fripe 
repay ease into her ease her into onto her stomach. He points out the blotchy red brown catches on her buttocks and the small of her back and across her shoulder blades and arms. The hypo the hypostas is faint where the victim has lost a lot of blood. Obviously, says Juna. Blood is heavy, and when you die, there is no longer any internal pressure system, the needle explains in Frippe. It might be obvious, but the blood runs downward and simply collects at the lowest points. It's most often seen on surfaces that it has been in contact with whatever body it was laying on. He presses a patch of her right calf with his thumb until it almost disappears. There, you see? You can press them and they make them disappear up to 24 hours after death. But I thought I saw patches on her hips and chest, says Juna hesitantly. Bravo, says the needle, regarding him with a faint surprised smile. I didn't think you'd notice those. So she was lying on her stomach when she was dead and before she was turned over, says Juna. For two hours, I'd guess. So the perpetrator stayed for two hours, or he came back to the scene or somebody else turned her over. The needle shrugs his shoulders. I'm a long way from finishing my assessment at this stage. Can I ask something? I noticed that one of the wounds on the stomach looks like a C-section. A C-section, says Needle, smiling. Why not? Shall we have a look at it? The two doctors turn the body once again. This one, you mean? The needle is pointing to a large cut extending about six inches downwards from the navel. Yes, replies Juna. I haven't had time to examine that every injury yet. V Valerna incisa, says Frippe. Yes, it does look like an incision, says the needle. Not a stab wound, says Juna. Frippe leans over so he that he can see. And a view of the fact that it's a straight line and the surface of the surrounding skin is intact. The needle pokes inside the wound with his finger. The wall, he goes on. They're not particularly blood-soaked, but... What is it? asked Juna. The needle is looking at him very strangely. This cut was made after her death, he says. He pulls off his gloves. I need to look at the computer tomography, he says wordly. He walks over, opens up the computer on the table by the door, clicks through the three-dimensional images, stops, moves on, and alters the angle. The wound appears to go into the womb, he whispers. It looks as if it's to follow old scars. Old scars? What do you mean? asked Juna. You're the one who called it, the needle smiles faintly. An emergency C-section scar. He points at the vertical wound. As Juna looks more closely, he can see that all along one side there is a thin thread of old pale pink scar tissue from a C-section that healed long ago. But she wasn't pregnant? asked Juna. No, the needle laughs, pushing his aviators back. We are dealing with a murderer who has surgical skills, says Juna. The needle shakes his head. Juna thinks about the fact that someone killed Kat Ja Eek in a frenzy with considerable violence and came back two hours later, turned her over, and carefully cut her open her old C-section scar. See if there's anything similar on the bodies. Do you want us to, to make that a priority, asks the needle. Yes, I think so. You're not sure? I'm sure. So you want us to prioritize everything. More or less, Junus is smiling as he leaves the room. But as Juna gets into his car, he starts to shiver. He starts the engine, pulls out 
in Cherizis Vog turns up the heater and keys in the number of Chief Prosecutor Jens Savalaham Halam. I don't know. Savin Jalam Junalina. Uh, good morning. I've just been talking to Carlos. He said you'd be in touch. It's a little difficult to say what we're dealing with here, says Juna. I've just left the forensics unit, and I'm thinking of heading to the hospital. I really need to question the surviving witness. Carlos, explain the situation to me, says Jens. Have you got the profiling group started? A profile won't be enough, replies Juna. No, no, I know. I agree. If we're to have any chance of protecting the older sister, we absolutely have to speak to the boy. Juna suddenly sees a firework explode in complete silence, a pale blue star far away from the roost of Stockholm. He clears his throat. I'm in touch with Susan Granat of Social Services, and I was thinking of having Eric Maria Bart, the psychiatrist, with me during questioning. He's an expert in the treatment of shock and trauma. That's perfectly in order, says Jen, reassuringly. In that case, I'll go straight to the neurological unit. Good idea. Chapter 15 Tuesday, December 8th, morning. Hurrying along the hospital corridor after dropping Benjamin off at school, Eric thinks how stupid he has been in comment to Ada's tattoo. He has just made himself look self-righteous and critical in their eyes. Two ununiformed police officers led him into the unit. Junalina is already waiting outside the room where Joseph Eck is lying. Where he sees Eric, he gives a little wave, like a small child might, opening and closing his hand. Eric looks in at Joseph through the window in the door. A bag of blood, almost black, is suspended above him. His condition has stabilized somewhat, but there's still a risk of new bleeds in the liver. The nurse prepares an infusion of morphine. He's lying on his back, his mouth tightly closed, his stomach is moving rapidly up and down, and his fingers twitch from time to time. It was right when I said the perpetrator started at the soccer field, says Juna. He murdered Anders Eck first, then he went to the house and killed Lisa, the little girl, thought he killed the little boy, and killed Katja, the mother. Has the pathologist confirmed that? Yes, replies Juna. I see. So if the killer's intention is to eliminate the entire family, Juna goes on. Only the older daughter remains. Evelyn? Unless he's found out the boy is still alive, says Eric. Exactly, but we can protect him. Yes, we have to find the killer before he can get to Evelyn, says Juna. He looks Eric directly in the eye. I need to find out what the boy knows. And I need to do what's in the best interest of the patient. Perhaps it's in the best entrance not to lose his sister. That occurred to me as well. I'll have another look at him, of course, says Eric, but I am faintly sure it's too early. That said, I believe the patient will regain consciousness quite soon, within just a few hours, or at least to the extent that we'll be able to start talking to him. But after that point, you have to understand that we have a lengthy therapeutic process ahead of us, and interrogation could damage the boy's condition. Daniela walks over briskly, wearing a snug red coat. She hands the patient profile to Eric. Eric, it doesn't matter what we think. The prosecutor has already decided the special circumstances apply. Eric turns and looks inquiringly at Juna. 
So you don't need our consent? he asked. No, answers Juna. So what are you waiting for? I think Joseph has already suffered more than anyone should have to suffer, says Juna. I don't want to put him through anything that might harm him. But at the same time, I have to find his sister before the killer does. And that boy saw the attacker's face. If you won't help me find out what he knows, I'll do it myself. But obviously, I prefer the better way. Which is? Hypnosis, replies Juna. Eric looks at him. I don't even have permission to hypnotize. I've spoken to Anika Lorenztun, says Daniela. What did she say, says Eric. It's hardly a popular decision, permitting an unstable patient to be hypnotized. A child in the bargain. But since I'm responsible for the patient, she has left the final judgment to me, Daniela tells him. Eric exhales, then rubs his eyes with, fi with his fingers. I really want to get out of this. If you don't mind me saying so, your reluctance to use hypnosis seems to go beyond your prudent concern for the patient's well-being, says Juno. I have no intention of discussing that matter, but I promised ten years ago to never use hypnosis again. It was a decision on my part that I still think was the right one. Is it right in this case? asked Juno. To be honest, I don't know. Make an exception, implores Daniela. Hypnosis, then, Eric sighs. I'd like you to make an attempt as soon as you feel the patient is in any way receptive to hypnosis, says Daniela. It would be good if you were here, says Eric. I made the decision with regards to hypnosis, she explains, on conditions that you have to take over responsibility for the patient. So I'm on my own now? Daniela looks at him, exhausted. I've worked all night, she says. I'd promised to take my daughter to school. I blew that off, and I'm going to have to deal with that tonight. But right now I have to go home and sleep. Chapter 16 Tuesday, December 8th, Morning Eric watches Daniela Richards walk down the corridor, red coat flapping behind her. Juna looks at the patient. Eric goes into the washroom, locks the door, washes and dries his face. He takes out his phone and calls Simone, but there is no reply. He tries his home number and listens to the phone ringing, but when the answering machine kicks in, he no longer knows what to say. Six in. I... You have to listen to me. I don't know what you're thinking, but nothing's happened. Maybe you don't care, but I promise I'm going to find a way to prove to you that I'm... Eric stops speaking. What's the point? He knows his re his assurances no longer have any meaning. He lied to her ten years ago, and he still hasn't managed to prove his love. Not sufficiently. Not enough for her to begin to trust him again. He ends the call, leaves the washroom, and walks over to where the detective is gazing into the patient's room. What is hypnosis exactly? Juna asks after a while. It's just an altered state of consciousness, coupled with suggestion and meditation, Eric replies. From a purely neurological, neurophysiological point of view, the brain functions in a particular way under hypnosis. Parts of the brain that are rarely used are suddenly activated. People under hypnosis are very deeply relaxed. It's almost looks as if they're asleep, and if you do an EEG, the brain activity shows a person who is awake and alert. I see, Juno says hesitantly. When people think of hypnosis, they usually mean hytrophonosis, where one person hypnotizes another with some purpose in mind, such as, such as invoking negative hallucinations, for example. What's that? 
The most common is that you inhibit the conscious registration of pain. But the pain is still there? That depends on how you define it, Eric replies. Of course, the patient responds to pain with a physiological reaction, but he experiences no feeling. It is even possible to carry out surgery under clinical hypnosis. Juno writes something down in his notebook. The boy opens his eyes from time to time. He looks through the window again. I've noticed. What's going to happen now? To the patient? Yes, when you hypnotize him. During dynamic hypnosis in a therapeutic context, the patient almost always splits himself into an observing self and one or more experiences and act, acting selves. He is watching himself like in a theater. Yes. What are you going to say to him? Well, he's experienced terrible things, so first of all, I have to make him feel secure. I begin by explaining what I'm going to do, and then I move on to relaxation. I talk in a very calm voice about his eyelids feel feeling heavier, about wanting to close his eyes, about breathing deeply through his nose. I go through the body from head to toe, then I work my way back up again. Eric waits while Juna takes notes. After that comes what's called the in induction, says Eric. I insert a kind of hidden command into what I say and get the patient to imagine places and simple events. I suggest a walk in his thoughts farther and farther away until he need to control the situation almost disappears. It's a little bit like when you're reading a book and it gets so excited that you you're no longer aware of the fact that you're sitting reading. I understand. If you lift the patient's hand like this and then let go, the hand should stay where it is in the air, cataleptic, when the induction is over. Eric explains, after an induction, I count backwards and deepen the hypnosis further. I usually count, but others have the patients visualize a gray scale in order to dissolve the boundaries in his mind. What is exactly taking place on a practical level is that the fear or the critical way of thinking that is blocking certain memories is put out of action. Will you be able to hypnotize him? If he doesn't resist. What happens then? asks Juno. What happens if he does resist? Eric studies the body through the window in the door trying to read the boy's face, his receptiveness. It's difficult to say what I'll get out of him. It could be a very valu variable relevance, he says. I'm not after a witness statement. I just want a hint, a clue, something to go on. So all you want me to look for is the person who did this to them. A name or a place would be good, and some kind of connection. I have no idea how this is going to go, says Eric, taking a deep breath. Chapter 17, Tuesday, December 8th, morning. Juna goes into the recovery room with Eric, sits on a chair in the corner, slips off his shoes, and leans back. Eric dims the light, pulls up a metal stool, and sits down next to the bed. Carefully, he begins to explain to the boy that he wants to hypnotize him in order to help him understand what happened yesterday. Joseph? I'm going to be sitting here the whole time, says Eric calmly. There is absolutely nothing to be afraid of. You can feel completely safe. I'm here for your sake. 
you don't have to say anything you don't want to say, and you can bring the hypnosis to an end whenever you want. Only now, his heart pounding, does Eric begin to realize how much he has longed to do this. He must try to curb his enthusiasm. The pace of events must not be forced or hurried along. It must be filled with stillness. It must be allowed to slow down and be experienced in its own gentle tempo. He immediately feels how receptive Joseph is. His injured face grows heavier. The features fill out and his mouth relaxes. As It's as if the boy intuitively clings to the security Eric conveys. It's easy to get the boy into a state of deep relaxation. The body has already been at rest and seems to long for more. When Eric begins to, when Eric begins the induction, it is as if he never stopped practicing hypnosis. His voice is close, calm, and matter-of-fact, and the words come so easily they pour out, suffused with monotonous warmth and a and a somnolent falling cadence. Joseph, if you'd like to, think of a summer's day said Eric. Everything is pleasant and wonderful. You're lying at the bottom of a little wooden boat, bobbing gently. You can hear the lapping of the water, and you are gazing up at little white clouds drifting across the blue sky. The boy responds so well that Eric wonders if he ought to slow things down a little bit. Difficult events can increase sensitivity when it comes to hypnosis. Inner stress can function like an engine in reverse. The breaking action happens unexpectedly fast, and the rev count very quickly drops to zero. I'm going to start counting backwards now, and with each number you hear, you will relax a little more. You will feel yourself being filled with great calm. You will be aware of how pleasant everything around you is. Relax from your toes, your ankle, your calves. Nothing bothers you. Everything is peaceful. The only thing you need to listen to is my voice. The numbers counting down. Now you are relaxing even more. You feel even heavier. Your knees relax along your thighs to your groan. You feel yourself sinking downward at the same time, gently and pleasantly. Everything is calm and still and relaxed. Eric rests a hand on Joseph's shoulder. He keeps his gaze fixed on the boy's stomach, and with every exhale, he counts backwards. Hang on, guys, I lost my spot. Eric had almost forgotten the feeling of dreamlike lightness, a physical strength that fills him as the process runs its course. As he counts, he can see himself sinking through bright, oxygen-rich water. Smiling, he drifts down past a vast rock formation, a continental fissure that continues down towards immense depths, the water glittering with tiny bubbles, filled with happiness. He descends along the rough wall of rock. As Eric falls through the bright water, he reaches out an arm, gazing the rock with his fingers as he passes. The bright water shifts slowly into shades of pink. 
The boy is showing clear signs of hypnotic rest. An expression of great relaxation has settled over his cheeks and mouth. Eric has always thought that a patient's face becomes broader, somehow flatter, less attractive, but more fragile and without any trace of pretense. Now you are deeply relaxed, said Eric calmly. Everything is very, very pleasant. The boy's eyes gleam behind the half-clothed lids. Joseph, I want you to try and remember what happened yesterday. It started just like any ordinary Monday, but in the evening, someone comes to your house. The boy is silent. Now you're going to tell me what happened, says Eric. The boy responds with the faintest of nods. You're sitting in your room. What? Is that what you're doing? Are you listening to music? There's no reply. His mouth moves, asking, seeking. Your mom was at home when you got back from school, says Eric. He nods. Do you know why? Is it because Lisa has a temperature? The boy nods and moistens his lips. What do you do when you get home from school, Joseph? The boy whispers something. I can't hear. Eric urges gently. I want you to speak so I, I can hear you. The boy's lips move again and Eric leans forward. Like fire. Just like fire, Joseph mumbles, trying to blink. I go into the kitchen, but it isn't right. There's a crackling noise behind, between the chairs, and a bright red fire is spreading across the floor. Where's the fire coming from? asks Eric. I don't remember. Something happened before. He falls silent again. Go back a little. Before the fire in the kitchen, says Eric. There's someone there, says the boy. I can hear someone knocking at the door. The outside door? I don't know. The boy's face suddenly grows tense. He whimpers anxiously, and his lower teeth are exposed in a strange grimace. There's no danger now, says Eric. There's no danger, Joseph. You're safe here. You're calm. You feel no anxiety. You are simply watching what is happening. You are not there. You can see it all from a safe distance, and it isn't dangerous at all. The feet are pale blue, the boy whispers. What did you say? Someone's knocking at the door, the boy says, slurring the words. I open it, but there's no one there. Can't see anyone there. But the knocking keeps coming. Someone's playing a trick on me. The patient is breathing more rapidly, his stomach moving jerkily. What happens now? asked Eric. I go into the kitchen to get a sandwich. You eat a sandwich? But now the knocking starts again. The noise is coming from Lisa's room. The door is open a little. I can see that her lamp is on. I carefully push the door open with the knife and look in. She's on her bed. She has her glasses on, but her eyes are shut and she's panting. Her face is white. Her arms and legs are totally stiff. Then she throws her head back so her throat is stretched right out, and she starts to kick the bottom of the bed with her feet. She just keeps kicking faster and faster. I tell her to stop, but she keeps kicking harder. 
I yell at her, but the knife has already started to stab, and M Mom runs in and pulls at me, and I spin around, and the knife moves forward. It just pours out of me. I need to get more knives. I'm afraid to stop. I have to keep going. It's impossible to stop. Mom is crawling across the kitchen floor. It's all red. I have to try the knives on everything. On me. On the furniture. On the walls. I hit and stab. And then suddenly I'm really tired and I lay down. I don't know what's happening. My body hurts inside and I'm thirsty. But I just can't move. Eric stays with the boy down there in the bright water, their legs moving gently. He follows the wall of rock with his eyes, farther and farther down, endlessly, the water gradually turning darker, blue fading into blue-gray, and then temptingly into black. You had seen, said Eric, hearing in his own voice tremble, you had seen your father earlier. Yes, down at the soccer field, Joseph replies. He falls silent, looks unsure, stares straight ahead with his sleeping eyes. Eric sees that the boy's pulse rate is increasing and realizes that his blood pressure is dropping at the same time. I want you to sink deeper now, Eric says softly. You're sinking. You're feeling calmer. Better, and not mom asked the boy in a feeble voice. Eric risks a guess. Joseph, tell me, did you see your older sister, Evelyn, as well? He observes the boy's face, aware that if he's wrong, the conjecture can create a rift in the hypnosis. But he feels he must take the leap, because if the patient's condition begins to deteriorate again, he will have to stop completely. What happened when you saw Evelyn, he said. I should have never gone out there. Was that yesterday? She was hiding in the cottage, the boy whispers, smiling. What cottage? Auntie Sanja's, he said. Tell me, what happens at the cottage? I just stand there. Evelyn isn't pleased. I know what she's thinking, he mumbles. I'm just a dog to her. I'm not worth anything. The smile is gone. The tears stream from Joseph's eyes, and his mouth is trembling. Is that what Evelyn says to you? I don't want to. I don't have to. I don't want to, whispers Joseph. What is it you don't want to do? His eyelids begin to twitch spasmatically. What's happening, Joseph? She says I have to bite, and bite to get my reward. Who? Who do you have to bite? There's a picture in the cottage, a picture in a frame that looks like a toadstool. It's Dad, Mom, and Lisa, but... His body suddenly tenses. His legs move quickly and limply. He is rising out of the depths of hypnosis. Carefully, Eric slows his ascent, climbing him before raising him a few levels. Meticulously, he closes the door on all memory of the day and all memory of the hypnosis. Nothing must be left open. Once he begins the careful process of waking him up, Joseph is lying there smiling when Eric finally moves away from his bedside and leaves the room. He goes over to the coffee machine. A feeling of desolation overwhelms him, a sense that something is irrevocably wrong. 
He glances up when the door to the boy's room opens. The detective strolls over to join him. I'm impressed, says Juno quietly, getting out his cell phone. Before you make any calls, I just want to stress one thing, says Eric. The patient always speaks the truth under hypnosis, but it's only a matter of what he himself perceives as the truth. His memory is as, as subjective as ever, and I understand that. I've hypnotized people suffering from schizophrenia, Eric goes on, and they were just as deeply detached from reality under hypnosis as they were in a conscious state. What is it you're trying to say? Joseph talked about his sister. Yes, she wanted to bite like a dog and so on, says Juno. He dials a number and puts the phone to his ear. There's no proof his sister told him to do that, Eric explains. But she might have, says Juno, raising a hand to silence Eric. Anja, my little treasure. A soft voice can be heard from the other end of the phone. Can you check on something for me? Yes, exactly. Joseph Eck has an aunt called Sanja, and she has a house or a cottage somewhere. Yes, that's your star. Juno looks up at her. Sorry, you wanted to say something else? Just that it's by no means certain it was Joseph who murdered the family. But it's possible that his wounds are self-inflicted. Can he have cut himself like that? Like this, in your opinion? Not likely. But it's possible... Juno persists. Theoretically, yes. Eric replies. Then I think your killers, our killer's lying in there, says Juno. I think so, too. Is he in any condition to run away from the hospital? No, Eric smiles weakly in surprise. Juno heads for the door. Are you going to the aunt's cottage? asked Eric. Yes. I could come with you, says Eric. The sister could be injured, or she could be in a state of shock. So, guys, that is it for today. Um, I didn't know hypnosis worked that way, in all honesty. Um, I get a feeling that I'm going to learn a lot about hypnosis in this book, and I'm perfectly okay with that because hypnosis is one of those things that I am interested in. Not something that I would do, but something I'm interested in learning about, you know, just, just because. Um... Leave a voice message, guys. Tell me what you guys think so far. Um, I I also have a question pointed to you guys. Do you think hypnosis would be something cool to learn? Not to do, per se, but to learn. I mean, would it be cool to do it as well? We never know. So, let's do our last quote of the day, and then we'll be done. So... Today, we are using my Attitude app, and our section well, there is no section 14 in this one, so let's spin again. We are doing section 8, so in my Attitude app, we are doing a motivational quote. So, let's see. Motivation. Motivational. Uh... Alright, today's um, quote to end on will be, One day, you'll wake up, and you'll be so glad you didn't settle for just anything, and you chose to wait for God's plan. Yeah, okay. Uh, 
no hate guys, but I'm not a God person, religious person of any sort. I mean, there are things that I believe in, yeah, but not religion wise. So that quote doesn't really apply to me, but, uh, I do wake up in the morning sometimes though and be glad that I did choose the choices that I did choose to get me where I'm at. Now, that part I can understand. Now, that part I can relate to. So, anyway, that is it for, the guy, for today, guys. So, I will Let see you me out. next time. Let me out. I'm stuck in your pocket. Chowski for now.